Welcome to the Awake Church Podcast. At Awake, our mission is simple. Know God, take action. We pray this podcast will help you on that journey. Good morning, Awake. My name is Dawn, and I'm one of the pastors here for anyone who doesn't know me. And today we are going to continue our journey through the book of Romans. If you didn't get to hear Matt teach last week on chapters 1 and 2, I would suggest going back and listening to that. He talked a little bit about the history and just began that book. You know, a couple of things that I like to remember as I'm thinking about Paul's letters and reading them is that Paul was a devout Jew. He was a Roman citizen by birth. He was a Pharisee. Um, It says in Acts, he was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Um, He would have known the law, the culture, the philosophy from his time. And then I also like to think back that he was Saul before we called him Paul. He persecuted Christians. And it's said by Luke that he was at Stephen's stoning and that they laid Stephen's clothes at his feet So when I think of Paul, um, he encountered Jesus on Damascus Road, and then we start to see him called Paul in Scripture. He was not seeking God at that time. He was actually running from God, and God chose him. And I believe that Paul writes out of these experiences that he had when we're reading. So when I'm reading through chapters 3 and 4 today, I like to keep those things in mind. In the beginning of chapter 3, Paul continues through a series of questions and answers. And the theme is that everyone, Jew and Gentile, are guilty of sin. That the Jews received the law, but they didn't obey it. And that the Gentiles did not receive the law in the way that they did, but it was written on their hearts and they violated it. Let's start with chapter 3, verse 1. Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, You will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But some might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. In this section, I just think Paul was really pointing out the twisted way of thinking in the culture. 
that he was seeing. And a way that we might hear part of that today would be that the end doesn't justify the means. In other words, we're not given permission to sin just because God chooses to take the difficult, hardest, even most sinful things in our life and turn them. And somehow out of that, he will bring good. But that's still not a license for us to sin. So let's look at um, verse 9. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is truly wise, no one is seeking God, all have turned away, all have become useless, no one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies, snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. No one is righteous, not even one. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them, and they don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Here, Paul chose some verses that I think are difficult verses out of several Psalms and out of Isaiah to describe the power of sin that he was seeing, I believe, around him. And I wonder if, like, we look at the world today and we see the culture and the sin, if Paul was kind of looking out and seeing what we are. He makes a few points here, especially in those verses 11 through 18 that we just read, that all people are under the power of sin, that our minds are not the mind of Christ. We can't see the way that he sees and know all that he knows. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that we see in a mirror dimly, right? We know in part, we prophesy in part, but God sees the whole picture when we can't. And so there's choice, It seems like sin sometimes is more evident, actually, than the fear of the Lord. That people might choose to do the comfortable thing instead of really desiring to know God, to know His will, to be acquainted with His character. And by choice, Paul was pointing out people lie and they speak death and they hold bitterness in their hearts. And then he talks about our relationship with one another. And I think about how Jesus said that if we bring a gift to the altar, right, that if we realize that our brother has an issue with us, that we're to leave that gift and go and make it right. And then we come back and then we give. And then in that same area, it's in Matthew 25, Jesus says that if a man looks at a woman Right? And he lusts after her in his heart that he's committed adultery. So it was beginning to point out some of the differences, too, between the law and grace and how things would be written on our heart. And then, of course, the last thing that he said was they have no fear of the Lord at all. Um, I want to read a little excerpt. I read a book. I don't often um, you know, tell people you should read this book. Um, And I'm not even going to say that, but I did enjoy it. It's called The Seven Spirits of God, and Chris Reed wrote it. 
But I just felt like the Lord reminded me of this little section. Chris writes, I had an encounter a few years ago about the seven spirits of God. I was caught up in the spirit, and I met an angel called the fear of the Lord. So he was invited to walk through a door, and as he walked through the door, he saw a large library in heaven, and he saw a lot of scrolls and accounts of what had happened in history past. And he was invited just to kind of look around, and he saw this section called the supernatural section. And he saw a book that said the seven spirits of God. So that was the one that was highlighted. He pulled it off the shelf. And he said on the front cover, it said the spirit of the Lord. There were five pages in between that were the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge. And then on the back cover was written the spirit of the fear of God of the Lord. He said as he held the book, he was overcome by all the colors and lights and euphoric feelings of joy and peace, yet reverence and awe. And then he glanced up for a second, and when he looked back down, that the spirit of the fear of the Lord that was written on the book had fallen off. It's like it had been ripped off, and it was lying on the front. So he took the back cover, and the pages fell out, And he's holding the fear of the Lord in one hand and the spirit of the Lord in the other. And the angel says to him, do you understand what this means? And he said, when the fear of the Lord is taken away from the church, the supernatural acts of the Holy Spirit are lost as well. The pages fall out. And I just felt like that the Lord was kind of highlighting a little bit for us about what we're seeing in our culture, how when we look around, we're really not seeing what I would call the fear of the Lord around us. We're seeing a lot of other things. We're seeing a lot of places where maybe there's some passivity to sin. And I want to define first the fear of the Lord. It is not fear in the way we might think of it as being afraid or being terrified of something. It is not that at all in a negative way. It is not fearing God because of something that we may have done wrong or that we're not pleasing to God. My frame for the fear of the Lord and how I think about it is that it is the reverence and awe of God that I have from this intimate relationship with Him. It's this drawing to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. It's this place inside of us that develops out of relationship, right, that we know that he is God, that he is moving in our lives, that without him, like we were singing this morning, right, without him we're not living. And so it's trust in the character and the person of God that we learn about in the Scripture and through the experiences that we have with Him. Scripture says it this way, just a few Scriptures about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. I believe there's a confidence in Him 
And then we don't as much notice, I think, what comes at us sometimes from out here. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the, perver- the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. And Psalms 33, 8. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And I believe that that awe and reverence, that desiring what he desires, is what we are defining as the fear of the Lord. So when the fear of the Lord is present in our lives, we realize that God is love. We know that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, right? We get to know his character. We learn that we can trust him. And in that same place, God is a just God. He's still the God who gave us clearly in his word what is sin and what is not, what he loves and what he hates. Isaiah 28, 17 says the plumb line and the measuring line of God are his justice and his righteousness. So I certainly don't have all the answers for situations that we're faced with daily in our families, in our jobs, and beyond that. But I know this, God has strategies that we need. And it's in this place of the fear of the Lord and living by faith that I believe we find those strategies, that God gives us ways when we're with someone in our family, maybe, that we are loving the person, as Matt said, but not embracing the sin. He will give us the words to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth through his character and through who he is in us. So I just, I have this thought that I ponder sometimes that could one of the greatest deceptions that is pulling on us during this time be a trap to be passive to sin? Because to love means to meet somebody where they are, to love them where they are, and do we take it a step further and not stand sometimes in that foundation, right, of truth, and become passive to something because we're afraid that if we don't kind of embrace them and what's happening, that somehow that's not love. And so I would say that Paul would have said it this way, may it never be, or certainly not, which is um, several times in what we're reading today. Let's determine to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness to stand on the truth of the word of God and not be passive to the sin, to love well by being willing to tell someone the truth. You know, I minister to a lot of people that come and see me and sometimes they'll share something with me and I can pick up in what they're saying, that they're believing something that is not God. They're believing a lie or that they're embracing something. And what they want is for us to say to them, you know, I want to challenge you in what you're thinking right there. Is that really 
something that God has said to you. And they appreciate that we are willing to stand in that place and to love them well. Let's go on now with verse 19. Obviously, the law applies to the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful we are. And now Paul begins to shift his message a little bit from kind of chapters 1 and 2 and this first part of 3 into what it means to be justified by God apart from works, apart from the law. So verse 21, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are. For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For He was looking ahead and including them in what He would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe Jesus. I think of this as God being outside of time. He can see the past, the present, and the future. And when he was looking at Noah, at Abraham, at people that came in the Old Testament before Jesus had come, he could see Jesus slain before the foundation of the world. So there being justified by faith was still because of Jesus being slain, because God sees from the beginning to the end. And it's like we can go up into that place and see his perspective on things at times. Verse 27, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, God is, after all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we get to forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. So Paul again here is highlighting that same theme that we were talking about, that Jews and Gentiles alike are justified by and through faith. 
I just had a thought with the Lord as I was thinking about what does it look like to be under the law versus to be under grace? You know, what? how really can we relate? And this is just a way for me that I think I relate to that. I grew up in a church of God, and in that place that I grew up, there was religion and legalism, and there was even, to me, a twisting of some of the word where you take a verse out of context— and you really don't understand the culture and maybe what that writer in the Bible was talking about, and you pull that out and put it in place as like a man's rule. And so I grew up feeling more controlled by rules and more driven by, well, I have to do everything right. I can't do this. I can't wear pants. I can't wear jewelry. I can't go here. I can't do this. Um, it was this feeling of, if this is God, then wow, like, do I really want to live this way? And so there was a feeling, you know, trapped in this place of trying to keep the rules and really being more afraid of failing than anything else. Um, It was kind of, I always say it was like the scared straight space. It was like, you know, almost every week, There were all of these things of, you know, are we doing everything right? And to me, I think of that as being law. And so I walked away from the Lord for some years. And when I came back, thankfully, he put people around me and he just really pursued me. And as I got into the word and as I got to this place where I had this relationship with Christ that was intimate, when I was really understanding who He was and what He required and what He didn't require. It has allowed me to just have so much healing. And all of the shame and all of the things that happened when I was younger, it's like they're washed away, and I live in this place of freedom. And so I think of that way that I grew up is a picture of like, this is what it feels like to be under the law. And then I look at how I get to live today and how that God has taught me that in relationship with Him, it's written on our hearts, right? What is right and what is wrong. We will know He's a kind Father. He will correct us. He will grab us and pull us back onto the road if we start to get off. And it doesn't mean that we don't follow the Word. Absolutely, the Word of God is important. It is our foundation. We need to know what the Word says, but there's this amazing freedom, right, in grace. So that's kind of just how, for me, I can frame those two things. And I just wonder, you know, there's probably some of you guys that um, have had some of that same experience. Now in chapter 4, Paul starts to bring in examples, and he used King David and he uses Abraham to prove biblically that we are justified by grace through faith. Chapter 4, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that's not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
This is a quote from Genesis 15, 6, that God counted him as righteous. And that word counted in the Greek is the word legizomai. And it means literally to take something and enter it into someone's account. It's even been seen as an accounting term. It's used 11 times by Paul in this chapter where he is saying that this is a gift being put in your account. It's not something that you earn. It's a gift because you believe God. So let's read starting in verse 4 now. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. So this is a quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And if we think about David, he wrote Psalms 51 and Psalm 32 after he had um, sinned with Bathsheba and he had killed Uriah. And so these were the Psalms that he wrote that were like his repentance to the Lord. And in the end of Psalm, or a little bit further down in Psalm 32, he says, Finally, I confessed my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. My guilt is gone. You know, David was justified by grace through faith in that moment. David had to believe that when he brought this sin before the Lord, and he repented for that, that God would forgive him. So he had faith to believe in that. So therefore, he understood that, okay, I'm, I'm clean before God. And I think he would have seen that over and over, like there was an experience in David's life. There were so many things that happened. He ran from Saul. He um, had even the baby that um, came out of this sin with Bathsheba, um, he was told that the baby was going to die, and he wept bitterly for the days that the baby lived. But it says as soon as the baby died, David got up, he washed his face, and it says that he moved toward the Lord. His faith was still in that God had his best interest at heart. When Ziklag was attacked and burned and all the women and the children were taken, and David finds this out, right? David was greatly distressed. And the Bible says David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Again, he's moving toward God in faith to know that God is going to help him. And he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord tells him to go. And of course, they recover everything. I feel like David understood God's faithfulness and he knew how to put his faith in God and know that he, as he repented and he was forgiven, that he was justified, that he was made righteous. Let's read starting now in verse 9. 
Now, is the blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous, even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is, a, it is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it. Whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous when we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. I love this part that says Abraham did not waver in believing God's promise, but grew stronger in faith, giving glory to God, and was fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. I want to talk a little bit about Abraham's story. Um, if you want to read his story, it's in Genesis chapter 11, verses 26 through chapter 25, verses 8. Abraham enters the scene at around 85, not 85, 75 years old, with God telling him to leave his family and his country and to go to a land that the Lord would show him. 
Now we start to see some things about Abraham's life. They go into Egypt, and one of the first things that happens is that Abram actually is his name in this section of Scripture, and his wife is Sarai. Abram has his wife lie about being his sister and not his wife. Right? So right off the bat, it's like Abraham was not perfect, but the scriptures say he never wavered right in his faith of believing the promise God had given him. So chapter 15, the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision and he says, Abraham or Abram, I am your shield and your reward will be great. And Abram boldly says to God, God, what will you give me? since I have no children. And so God takes Abraham outside, and I think about how he took him outside of the tent, and he said, look up at the stars in the heavens. And I'm thinking it's probably this gorgeous night full of stars. He says, and if you can count them, right, so many will be your descendants. And he believed in God's promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness, which is the quote that we had earlier. So now in chapter 16, Sarai has a great idea. She's going to give him her handmaiden, Hagar, and they are going to have her a baby. And as we know, that has a lot of issues that come with it, both present and later. But Ishmael is born out of that. And then in chapter 17, we're already like 13 years later. And it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. And in that moment, I just have to wonder, this is just me, was Abraham thinking about the failures? Was he thinking about the times that he'd had to sacrifice for the lie, for the things that had happened? I don't know, but I wonder. And he falls face down right before the Lord. And God talks with him and says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer will you be Abram, but your name will be called Abraham for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. So right in the middle of all of these things that Abraham, now called Abraham, is walking through, right, God comes to him. It's like he confirms the promise. It's like he's standing Abraham back up to say, the promise is still true, Abraham. We're still going to do this. And he said, he gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and he tells him that about this time next year, that his wife, Sarah, who her name has been changed now as well, will have a son. From the outside looking in, again, I just want to say Abraham did not walk perfectly, right? There were places where things happened in his life, but the Bible still says about him, right, that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. So God knew his heart, and I believe God saw his faith, and that he never wavered in the promise, is what the Lord says to us. Um, 
So I want to pause right there and just step back because I felt like what the Lord wanted me to share today was this parallel in Abraham's life to Jesus coming and dying for our sins, which is the gospel that Paul's really sharing in chapter 4. So if we go back to the beginning, God created man in his image. And man was capable of love the way that God loved. He would be eternal. And God gave free will and choice. And then he placed the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden to give that choice so that man would actually be able to choose. And he says, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but not that one. And as we know, sin enters and man broke relationship with God in that place. But God still desired fellowship with his creation. So when we look at the Old Testament, God created this way, not only by covering them in that moment, but in the Old Testament where a person could take an ox, take a lamb, and go to the priest, and they would lay their hands on the head of that lamb. It's like they would transfer their sin to the animal. And then the animal would be slain as a sacrifice for their sin. It would be called a sin sacrifice. And now let's look back at this parallel in Abraham's life. Um, In Genesis 22, it talks about Abraham... It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And then he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men. And he took his son Isaac, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and he set out, and he went to the place where God had told him to go. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, and he saw the place in a distance. So he said to the young men he had brought, you stay here, and Isaac and I are going to go over here and worship, and then we will come back to you. I see faith in that already. So they walk on together, and Isaac says, Father, I see the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them walked on together, and they came to the place where God had told him. And Abraham built the altar, and he arranged the wood, And he binds his son and he puts his son on top of this altar. And he raises the knife and an angel of the Lord calls out and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And he says, do not reach your hand against the boy and do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And I feel like God was basically saying, Abraham, that's far enough. We can see the picture. It was the foreshadowing, right, of what is going to come. And so Abraham raises his eyes and he looks and behold, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham takes the ram 
and he sacrifices it. And this place was called the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And 2,000 years later, on Mount Moriah, on that same mountain, God provided himself a sacrifice. His only son. And in Romans 3, Paul is saying, all are under the power of sin. The purpose of the law was just to reveal sin. But you're only made right through faith in Jesus Christ. And in Romans 4, he just takes David, who God says is a man after his own heart, in all of the failures because of the faith to come to the Lord over and over and to repent, right, and to believe. And Abraham, who is called the father of our faith, both justified by grace through faith. This is the gospel. Right in the middle of Paul's letter, it's like that's what came out to me the most. So are we living like we are under the law or are we living in this place of grace that is provided for us? When we believe on Jesus Christ at that conversion, we die to sin. We die to that sinful lifestyle, right? And we get positioned in this righteous life to walk it out with him. How many of us still sometimes find ourselves measuring our righteousness or how worthy we believe we are, right, by what we're doing or how we feel or something that we failed in? To be in faith, we will let go of those old mindsets, Right? We will allow God to heal those places where lies have snuck in. We will get rid of that performance mentality. And we will trust God that His promises are true. Another thought I had was, are there promises that God has spoken over our lives here today that maybe we just need to kind of step back into a place of faith. Like, are there things that we've forgotten that God promised us? Are there places where it feels impossible for God to do what He said, or that we've been waiting a really long time for a promise that God gave? Abraham waited, I think it's over 25 years from the time of the promise to the fulfillment of the promise. By grace through faith, we are saved, justified, and made righteous. Would you guys stand with me? If there's anyone here this morning or listening online, and maybe this is the first time you've really heard the gospel this way, today would be a great day to say yes to Jesus, to Place faith in Jesus Christ, in his work, in what we talked about in communion, in what we sang in all the songs this morning. If you haven't done that, um, I'm going to pray with us, and then we are going to have um, a prayer team that will be over to the right. And if you want to put your faith in Jesus today, or if there's a promise that you're wanting just someone to agree with you as you step back into faith for that, please go over to where the prayer team will be.
Let's pray. God, we just acknowledge that all are under the power of sin. But thank you, Jesus, that you took our sins upon yourself. God, that you died in our place, the ultimate sacrifice. God, we just stand and say, Lord, forgive us if there's anything in our life, Lord, that we need forgiveness for. And that, God, we release forgiveness to others. God, we just declare together that it is only through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that we're saved and made righteous. And we thank Jesus for this precious gift. And Lord, I ask this morning for strategies for the places that we face in this world. Lord, where we need to know what do we speak? How do we speak the truth in love? How do we love well? God, I ask you for strategies for those who have family members and friends and co-workers and just people that they meet that they need to be able to speak to. And I thank you, God, that your word tells us that in the moment that we need the words to speak, that you will put them in our mouth. So God, we just thank you for this message today. And we just acknowledge again, Lord, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. For updates on future episodes, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. For more information about Awake Church, visit awakechurch.com.